Lisa Rogak wrote a book called Death Warmed Over. It's a book about, uh, it's actually a cookbook that has recipes in it used all over the world for funeral meals and also talks about death and funerals. So kind of an interesting book you can pick up. But she tells a story in it about a uh, man who's an elderly man lying on his deathbed. And he's, um, you know, just moments away from the end. And as he's there, he inhales and smells these chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven downstairs. And he thinks, if only I could have one more chocolate chip cookie before I die. So he rolls out of bed and he crawls across the floor over to the landing, drags himself down the steps, through the living room into the kitchen where he just reaches his decrepit arm up and puts his hand on that chocolate chip cookie when all of a sudden, whack, his wife hits him with a spatula on his hand. He says, honey, excuse me, honey, <laughs> why would you do that? She said, they're not for you, they're for the funeral, is what she tells him. <laughs> you know, we all have this drive to have one more, right? And I think, I'm afraid that mine is going to be at the end, I'm going to breathe in and smell not chocolate chip cookies, but what do you think it might be? A pumpkin spice latte. I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better. And I don't know what I would do if my hand got whacked in that moment. John Ortberg, after this story, said, Ask not who, for whom the spatula whacks, it whacks for thee. See, there's a danger in wanting more. It may be in wanting one more cookie. It may be in wanting one more pumpkin spice latte. It may be wanting one more whatever. Maybe it's success, however you measure success. But the problem with wanting one more is that maybe our drive for that would overshadow the idea or the reality that these things are just temporary aspects of life. Let me see if I can illustrate for you um, th- this uh, principle. Um, there was a uh, student who was voted most likely to, su- to succeed and went on to college, uh, lived in the Greek village, and um, somewhere about his sophomore year, he decided to buckle down because he decided, I'm going to climb the rungs of the ladder of success to reach the highest points. And so he started basing every decision he made, what he did with his time, who he dated, uh, you know, what, what, all the things that he would decide to do for himself based on reaching the highest rungs of success on that ladder. And so uh, right after graduation, he married, moved to Silicon Valley, where all of a sudden he became very busy and very important. He regularly worked 12 to 14 hours a day, and he worked a lot of weekends. And even when he wasn't working, his, his uh, thoughts drifted back towards his job. So not only was it his occupation, now it was his preoccupation. This is the type of guy that loved the 40-hour work week so much that sometimes he tried to do it twice in one week. And um, his wife tried to slow him down. She reminded him, you know, you've got a family. You've got to put time there. And his children would complain, you never read books to us. You never, you know, play catch with us. You never come home for lunch. Um, And of course, they were just trying to get some of his time, which that was the one thing he didn't have to give. He gave all of his time at the office. But he told himself, someday when things settle down, I'll be able to do that. He was a bright guy, but he never realized things never really settle down. And so what he would do when he felt extra guilty is he would tell himself, you know, I'm doing this for them. Even though the truth is he would have done it whether they were there or not. But the fact that they lived in the house they lived in, wore the clothes they wore, ate the food they ate, and played the video games they played, he could say, I'm doing this for them. Well, he recognized his life was out of balance. His wife would nag him and say, you know, can you please just go to church with me? And the truth is he wanted to go to church. 
And there was a church just around the corner, but Sunday was the only day he could crash. And so he thought, you know, I can be spiritual without going to church. And he said, you know, someday when things slow down, when things settle down, I'll be able to do things like that. Well, one day, the uh, chief operating officer of his company busted through the doors and said, you're not going to believe it. We are about to hit the mother load. You know, if we catch this wave early, it'll carry us into the point where we, we will have no worries with the future. And so uh, he said, the only problem is, is we've got all kinds of problems. We've got to overhaul the company. We've got communication issues. We've got inventory problems. We can't keep up with demand. We've got to do something and we're going to miss it. But if we catch this wave, it is, we're set for life. So he started brainstorming and he came up with this idea to revolutionize the company technologically so that now everybody in the company would be accessible 24-7. They uh, handed out universal mandatory hands-free phones. They had fax machines and laptops even in the bathrooms. And he came up with this idea, this slogan, this motto. And the motto was this, we live for this. And they put it on t-shirts. They put it on stress balls and uh, the mouse pads at the company. He went home and told his wife about it. And she said, you are not going to believe this. He said, we can soon relax. Our future is set. We'll be able to go on that vacation you've been nagging me about. But his wife had heard this sort of thing before. So she didn't get her hopes up too much. As a matter of fact, about 11 o'clock that night, she went on to bed by herself, as usual. He plopped himself down in front of the laptop. And with every keystroke, he started rearranging the universe. But there was one microscopic detail that escaped his attention. An artery that had once been as supple as a blade of grass was now as dry as plaster and as stiff as cement. For more than half a century, his heart had been pumping 70 milliliters of blood with every contraction, 14,000 pints each day, 100,000 beats per t- every 24 hours, all without him ever sending in a memo. And then all of a sudden, it skipped a beat, and it skipped a second beat, and it skipped a third beat, and he had blinding clarity. He realized, although he was at the top of organization charts all over the world, he, had not, he didn't even have control over his own pulse. Well, the Wall Street Journal and Forbes magazine ran this guy's obituary because he was just that important. The whole community showed up for his funeral and they filed past his casket and say things that you say at funerals like, he looks so peaceful. It's funny how rigor mortis does that to you. And then they would say the same thing you do at um, rich people's funeral. You say, I wonder how much he left behind. Every bit, every bit of it. That's what happened. Well, this... They commissioned a uh, marble monument for this guy and they wrote inspiring words on it like visionary, innovator, leader, entrepreneur. And at the top, they wrote the word that he had lived his life for, success. Well, later that evening when everybody was gone, was silent, no one was there, the angel of God descended down to the cemetery, floated past all those gravestones until he made the way to that monument. At the top, traced with his finger the single word that God used to summarize This wealthy, busy, respectable, successful man's life. F-O-O-L. Now maybe you'll recognize this story as one that Jesus told. See, Jesus was a teacher and he would use stories to make points. And a lot of times people would just gather from all over to hear. As a matter of fact, the one we're going to look at today in Luke 12 describes um, how thousands had gathered to hear Jesus. 
Now, what it appears is happening is that Jesus is teaching and those, uh, his closest disciples that are near him, they're the ones he's teaching. And he's trying to tell them how to live their life like he would. Because he was a rabbi, a good teacher. And so what you would do with the rabbi is you would find out how to live life, try to hear how he did things. And then you would try to emulate that. So he's teaching those around him. And the crowd on the outside is just gathered close enough to where they can kind of listen in, you know, kind of eavesdrop a little bit. Now, most of the time when I'm up here, I tell on my wife, but I'm going to tell on myself for just a minute. Um, I have a problem with eavesdropping. When we go to a restaurant, my wife and I out to dinner, I listen to every conversation around me because I feel like if you talk loud enough to where I don't have to strain too hard, it's fair game for me to listen in on what you're saying. And so she's telling me stuff that's really important because that's all she tells me is important stuff. And around me, I'm going, babe, did you just hear what they said? No, I was actually talking to you. You know, it's kind of how it goes. I was like, I mean, they're talking about, there might be a fight over there. Would you, you know, would, could you listen to me? I'm just saying, I'm just, and every once in a while, I kind of want to butt in and be like, can I just ask him a question? Excuse me, excuse, you know, kind of thing. Rachel's like, no, you will not talk to the people that you don't know. That's kind of what's happening in Luke 12, is that there's all of a sudden these people listening in, and some guy listening in decides to speak up. And in Luke 12, Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, the eavesdropper, Teacher, tell me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this guy poses a question, and he acts as if Jesus, you know, is the judge of some sort. You know, but of course, if you're going to get advice or you're going to ask somebody to give instructions, who else to turn to but Jesus, right? So he figured that out, so he's asking. Well, Jesus decided to stay out of it. He would give no legal judgment. Um, but a commentator, Childress, writes, but Jesus did make a moral one. Your request shows how greedy you are, he told the man. Lay aside your greed. Think about life. What is most important to you, money or relationship with God. So that's what he kind of says to this guy. And then all of a sudden he goes in to tell the story that I've kind of retold to you, but let's read it in verse 16 of Luke 12. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What should I, shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, I think the mental picture that we develop in our heads sometimes of what Jesus was like doesn't always line up with reality. Because I think we imagine Jesus to be kind of like the pal who shows up when we need him, you know? Where we can, you know, it's kind of like the James Taylor song, you just call out my name, you know, you know that thing. And so you're like, Jesus, and he comes running, you know, kind of thing. And uh, puts his arm around, you know, yeah, and he's just there to support you, encourage you, and, you know, what can I do for you? But he doesn't really step on your toes or confront or say, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. If he does, he does it in the most respectful manner and kind of like backs down after he does it. But that's not really the reality we read about in Scripture. Jesus isn't that type of person necessarily. In this conversation, Jesus is very frank. I mean, he cuts this chase. Now, he doesn't call this rich guy wicked. 
He doesn't call him evil. But he sure doesn't say that this rich guy, well, he was just kind of misled, you know, or he made a couple bad decisions. But all of a sudden, he summarizes this guy by saying, fool. He calls the rich man a fool. And now you can Google and Wikipedia rich fool, and you'll probably come up with this story now because it's become so famous. Now, he doesn't say that this man started out from the beginning of his life to try to make it uh, to the top where he would neglect relationships or defy God. But what we imagine, this, probably, this guy probably got distracted, right? He probably got obsessed and focused on other things, maybe the abundance. And really what he had done is he had committed himself to other things. I was looking at it. There's about seven things I think this guy committed himself to. First one was this. He was a harvest large crops. You know, that's what he was going to give his time to. You know, work the soil, do whatever you have to do, the harvest a large crop. Then he would build a ba- big barns and even bigger barns. So he was committed to that kind of thing. The third thing is he was committed to financial security and independence. Whatever it takes to have financial security and independence. And then fourth, he would eat. We all enjoy that. He would eat, five, drink, six, be merry. And finally, number seven, remember, don't die. And if he had accomplished all seven of those things, I mean, it would be an enviable life, right? But it's funny how that seventh one just kind of sneaks up on you, you know, catches you when you don't expect it. Remember not to die. But the truth is, that's the ultimate statistic. One in one will die. Not only that, our souls will always return to their maker. And the things you have stored up, whose are those things going to be now? This was the realization that tormented the wisest man who ever lived, King uh, Solomon. He wrote, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. When Jesus told this story, he summed up his lesson in a single sentence to make sure no one missed his point. It's verse 21. So it is for everyone who accumulates riches for themselves, but are not rich toward God. So the object of life, according to Jesus in this statement, is this. Be rich toward God. And that's what I want us to focus on the last half of this message. Now, let's be honest. It's very difficult to not, uh, to not live your life in the, for the stated purpose or the unstated purpose of accumulating wealth, right? There's just too much satisfaction that comes along with having wealth and resources and stuff. And we live in a society that celebrates this kind of success and rewards this kind of success that this man was experiencing. I think we would have admired him if we'd have known him. Possibly we would have envied him because that's what we're drawn to is that kind of wealth where you have no, you know, no, no need. Just eat, drink, and be merry. That's all you really have to worry about because that's where we're naturally drawn to. But there's a lot of pressure that's pushing us in that direction from the civilization we live in, society we live in, culture we're in, our family, the media, ourselves, our own desires. There's too much pressure in that direction for us just to abandon that and say, well, I'm just going to seek after what will make me rich toward God. But riches have one major weakness. This is what T.C. Butler, a commentator, writes. He says, they have no purchasing power after death. They cannot buy the currency needed to get to heaven. Okay, so we glean from this passage that the object of life, according to this verse, is to be rich toward God. So the question that should be going off in all of our minds is what? How do I become rich toward God? How can I be rich toward God? Well, obviously, it's whatever the man in this story didn't do, right? Well, what did he do with what he got? He harvested large crops. What am I going to do with it? I'll build bigger barns, and it'll all be for me. He saw everything he owned as being something to benefit himself. So to be rich towards God must mean that we use the things we possess 
for other purposes. We use what we have not just to benefit us, but to benefit other people. Well, one of the reasons that we love doing Greek Day is because we get to honor you for all that you're doing in community service and philanthropic work. I was looking at the Greek report from last spring and last fall, and combined, your chapters raised almost $690,000 for charity and philanthropic work. And you know what? There was no building of larger barns from that. Every single dollar of that went towards organizations and philanthropies and charities that would benefit other people and benefit other causes. That's what you contributed to, and that's phenomenal. But you didn't just give money. The report says, among you, combined a total of 120000 uh, community service hours given by your chapters. That is wonderful. And that may be one way that we can be rich toward God, to give of yourself and your resources for the benefit of others. See, Jesus taught that it's better to serve than to be served. When you look in Matthew twenty twenty eight, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, just before Jesus said these words, he said to those that were closest to him, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom that matters, then don't try to be served, but you've got to be the servant of everyone around you. And so we are most like Jesus when we're serving other people. And so that is something that might be making us rich toward God, storing up this certain kind of treasure that's valuable to God or in our relationship with God. Okay, so there's other things you could do. Some of you attend chapter study. Some of you lead chapter Bible studies. And some of you show up to those. You could be doing other things with your time, so that should count for something. A lot of you are here at church today, and I know you're probably exhausted from a long day yesterday and a long night, Friday night and Saturday night. I mean, it should count for something, right, that you're here. And so maybe we could put that in the column of being rich toward God. I went to church one day, you know. That's what we could say. There's all kinds of other ways that we could say might be rich toward God. You know, maybe um, it's through random acts of kindness. Maybe it's by paying it forward, if you do that. Maybe it's by keeping the golden rule. And it's probably towards things like um, being the model citizen in the way that you live. I mean, these are all things that you push as chapters and as societies. is towards that kind of thing. I think we naturally put those items in the being rich towards God column. So now that I've set you all up to adopt this sort of philosophy for life, then I kind of want to throw on the brakes just a little bit real quick. Because how confident can I be? And how confident can you be? And how confident can we in this room be that what matters most are those good works that makes us out to be good people who are rich toward God? You know, actually my biggest fear is that any one of us would walk out of here out of the room today and think that these good works that are aimed towards being rich toward God are going to guarantee us some sort of spot in heaven where all of a sudden we get to live with that treasure we've built up. If we think that our good works might do that. And it's so, uh, you know, such a tempting thing for us to believe is that really the people that get to inherit eternal life are good people. So as long as I'm good enough, then I'll get to be able to be there. And I believe we think that heaven and eternal life as a society is all about us being good on this side. We say, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God, right? I tried to live a good life. I haven't murdered anybody or anything like that. I may not be perfect. We throw that one in there just in case somebody's wondering. May not be perfect. I know you thought so, you know. But we kind of throw that in there. But but I've been good. And most of society believes that God's going to gather all the good people. And those are the ones that he's going to allow to come into heaven. Because you've been good enough, right? You've earned it. 
Well, that's what we call the good people go model. That's who gets to go to heaven. And it really is appealing. Why is that appealing? It's because I'm good, you know? I mean, who in here wants to admit, "Ah, I'm a really bad person, you know? I just don't think we would raise our hand and admit to that. Um, Everybody in Shawshank is innocent. That's what they say, right? And so we're all good. I'm good. It's kind of what we say. I mean, no one really wants to admit that there's a good God who lives in a good heaven that's going to take all the good people to go to heaven with him, but I'm not one of those. You know, nobody really admits to that. In fact, Time Magazine did a uh, study several years ago where they said that 87% of Americans believe in heaven and almost 87% think they're going there. And I guess the idea is that we think, well, if there's a heaven, then I'm good enough to know there's a heaven, so I must be one of the ones that's going. But we really misunderstand Jesus' message whenever we believe this. Let me tell you what the Bible says about the good people go model. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He penned it. And he wrote a particular letter to the church at Rome. We call it Romans. And in the third chapter of that book, verse 23, he writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? That means everybody tried to be good, but nobody could do it. Everybody tried to, but everybody falls short of God's expectation. And just a few verses before that, in Romans 3.10, he says, There's no one righteous, not even one. You know what that means? That means we could search the whole church today. We could search the whole city just to find one righteous person that we could lift up and say, Here's what it looks like. And we'd never find that person. A couple chapters later, in Romans 5.20... He writes, no one will be declared righteous by way of the law. You know what that means? That means God will never say to you or anybody else, good job. You did so good. You were the model citizen. You earned it. Come on in. This is yours all because of what you've done. That's what that verse means. And so if we think that, we're probably wrong. But the Bible says through the law, we actually become conscious of our sins. It's by having the Bible we say, there's no way that I could ever live up to what God expects out of me. And it's the realization that's like, I'm going to have to ride into somebody else's coattails in order to get in there. And the Bible tells us that that's through the life of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can make it there. So if you're living your life and thinking he's a good God who lives in a good heaven and I'm just following the good book and someday on death, God's going to say, you know, you were, hey, you were at 51% with regards to goodness, so come on in, you're better than most kind of thing, then you're really mistaken. See, there's something more important than good works when it comes to being rich toward God. And it's being rich in relationship with God. See, we can do all the good works. And let me just go and say this. The truth is, if you are in a relationship with God, if you already um, have been born again and he's made you new, then those the the, uh, demonstration that he's given here in this story of being rich toward God and the fact that we're not going to live like the rich man and just build bigger barns for ourselves, we're going to serve others, that should be a natural for us. We should be serving other people because that's God's expectation for us. But if you're not in a rela- if you walked in here today and you're not in a relationship with God, then, you're, then that's the thing that's most important is being r- rich in a relationship with him. Because if good people go is the way to eternal life, then here's the bottom line of it. Jesus lied. Because that's not what he taught. Jesus taught what no other person has ever taught. He taught that bad people go and good people don't. You didn't hear me wrong there. He said actually bad people go and good people don't. Because in his time there were these religious leaders around called the Pharisees. 
And their job description was to be good. That's what they were trying to do, to just be as good as they could. So they were as good as they could with every detail of life. What they ate, when they ate, what they wore, how they washed their hands, how many steps they took on certain days. They were, it was their goal just to be good. And Jesus looked at them one day, and he was saying to the people around him, Matthew 5.20, pointed them out and says, If you want to go to heaven, you have to be better than these guys. And everybody's looking at him going, <laughs> It doesn't get any better than that. They are the goodest people there are here on earth, you know. But Jesus Christ said, unless your righteousness is, exceeds the scribes, then you're hopeless. And so the common person would just give up because you're saying, hold up a second. If I've got to be that good, I don't have that kind of time to be that good. So I'd just rather give up. But rather Jesus would all of a sudden walk up to people who were far from God, who were called um, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And he walked up to them and he said, you're forgiven. And they said, but I didn't do anything to be forgiven. How can I be forgiven? But God, Christ was declaring them as forgiven. And Christ believed it wasn't the good ones that were going, but it was the bad ones who had been forgiven. Or for that matter, the good ones who could be forgiven as well. Jesus taught the best of the best were not making it, but the worst of the worst are. Jesus didn't believe good people go. Jesus believed forgiven people are welcomed into heaven. And so what I hope that you'll hear today is that Christianity is not about do. It's not about the things we can do to be rich toward God. Now, all of those things are noble things. You'll be honored for that. You know, and, and maybe you're demonstrating the way that Jesus lived. But it's not about do. Christianity is much more about done. It's what's been done so that you can be in relationship with God. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that you see God as a heavenly father. And if he's a heavenly father, then I can be in relationship with him by being his child. John 1 12 says, yet to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. So that means that today I can become rich in God, rich toward God, not by all the things I do, but all of a sudden because I become his child. And now I'm rich in relationship toward God. See, it's the forgiven people that lives eternity, eternally with God. And that really succeeds at the thing that really matters in the world, which is being rich in relationship with God, not rich toward God in the things that we do. It's by recognizing that there's a God who loves you beyond comprehension, loves you more than your mom does, more than anybody ever could, loves you so much, but because of the things you've done wrong, your sin, it's built up a wall between you and Christ. It's been up the wall between you and God. So you can't be there with him. But God loved you so much he made a way. And the way was through Jesus. He sent Jesus who lived a perfect life, grew up perfect life. And at a certain age, 33, I'm 33. When he was about 33, that's when they arrested him. And they crucified him on the cross. He died and he was buried. And it wasn't a needless thing. He did that so that you and I could ride into his coattails. Ride into heaven on his coattails. Because now we have been, we can be forgiven because of the punishment he's taken for us. And if all of a sudden we'll just receive him and believe on his name, then now we can become a child of God. So if you walked in here today without a relationship with Christ, without a relationship with God, then I want to ask you to consider something. Would you consider today the possibility of finding yourself rich toward God, not because of all the good things you do, not because of the checklist that you can make or the evidence you could show, but rich toward God because you are a child of God. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you that we can be here in this place. And we thank you that we have your word to understand you and understand life. We thank you that your word makes it very clear to us that we can never earn a way towards you. But it's on the merits of Christ alone that we can be greeted into eternal life to live with you forever. And Father, we just uh, pray for this time of contemplation as people really consider it, as they consider whether they're trying to earn their way to you or if they're trying to depend on what's been done for them to be able to stand before you. We pray that you'll deal with each heart and you'll have your way. It's your name we pray. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to invite everybody to stand. Our choir is going to sing. And what I want to, I want to just offer to you is an option. Is that down front, there'll be some of our staff. And maybe you came in here and you could say, well, I'm rich toward God if that first stuff is what it means to be rich toward God. But I'm not rich toward God if it means I have to be in relationship with him. Because I'm not quite sure what that means. I want to invite you to come forward. You don't have to have all the answers. But there'll be some people down here who can pray with you and talk through some of those questions you might have. Or maybe you came in here as a child of God, but you haven't necessarily been living for him. Well, I want to invite you forward. There'll be some people here that can pray for you. Maybe you just need to pray. And you need to say, you know what? I need to get this squared away because there's people watching. Or maybe you want to be like Ronald and you want to be baptized. And you want to say, you know what? I want to show to the world who I follow and whose I am. Well, I want to invite you forward. We'd love to line that up for you. Or maybe you say, you know what? I just need a church home. I need a place that I can depend on, that can depend on me. Well, I want to invite you forward and we'll chat with you about those things. So as we stand, the choir is going to sing and you respond.